to Lucky Paper Radio. I'm your host, Andy. I'm here with my co-host, Anthony. Once hit a squirrel with a hammer, Maddox. That's a deep cut in my life. Look, sometimes we record close back-to-back, and I, I don't have a magic nickname for it. We haven't played magic since we recorded the last episode, because we're kind of doing this you know, in, in rapid succession. And so I got to dig to the deep, the deep cuts. I'm worried that makes me sound like a horrible, sadistic person. In my defense, it was in self-defense. I was happened to have a hammer, and I was attacked by this very mangy-looking squirrel. And you were on a roof, correct? Uh, yes. <laughs> now, what brought you to the roof? I mean, I love you, Anthony. You're do not the most to, Do we need to handy? get like, deep If the roof this. needed repaired, I wouldn't think, <laughs> let me call my friend Anthony. Let's just put it that way. No, I was doing a nice favor for my mother and okay. helping train some vines up a trellis. I see. Mm-hmm. What is a hammer needed for for training vines? Just putting some oh, that's just in. there for self-defense in case you get attacked by a squirrel. <laughs> Uh, well, I mean, I never went up on the roof without a hammer after that. There you go. Yeah, you, I think, you know, you, you love animals. I want to make sure people know that. You're not out here trying Maybe to... it was more of a push as it jumped at my face. It mm-hmm. was a really weird experience, I'll be honest. That's a weird one. You had to be... You were the squirrel, you know? It walked away, but it did fall down two stories, so... If you're small enough, you could just fall That's as true, far yeah. as you want. Yeah, okay. I like to believe it was fine. It Are also... squirrels small enough they can just... Their terminal velocity won't hurt them? I don't know if they're quite that small. Maybe they are. I don't know. Some cats notoriously have fallen and hit things at terminal velocity and been fine. Cats are bigger than squirrels. Usually. For the most part. <laughs> Plus, I get the big bushy tail. That'll slow them down. Their terminal velocity is probably not even that fast. Is this a podcast about Magic the Gathering? Um. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is a podcast about Magic the Gathering. And, you know, we don't actually say this is a Cube podcast, Anthony. And this is the first episode where we are making good on that promise. Because we are not talking about Cube this week. We are talking about a cube-adjacent format called BattleBox. Now, hold on. Before you turn off the podcast listener, I know you're like, I tune in for the cube hot takes. I don't care about this other nonsense. I think there is a lot of interesting things you can learn about cube design and just magic in general from designing and playing BattleBox. So we're going to talk about this format and kind of go deep on it. We are making good on a promise we made to uh, Seussman on the Discord, I think almost a year ago at this point. Uh, so Seussman, you are now obligated to give us a five-star review on iTunes because we made this episode for you after I mean, much badgering. I don't think we're doing it for anyone. I think that when, I'm doing when it for we Seussman. decided to do this podcast, I was like, hmm, okay, I bet we'll run out of content in about two months, but here's maybe the eight things that I think we could talk about. And I think we've touched on maybe three of those topics. Mm-hmm. So. We spent, we spent all this time bullshitting about you hitting animals with hammers, so... De- defending myself with a hammer. Mm-hmm. Defending your, defending yourself, defending your honor. Before we talk about BattleBox, though, and what it even is, I'm going to leave you on tenterhooks, listeners, on pins and needles, waiting to find out what BattleBox is. Because first, we're going to start with a pack one, pick one from a listener submitted cube. This cube comes to us from listener Brad and Anthony. We can't really do a pack one, pick one from a BattleBox because you don't draft it. So right, we don't want to send in a BattleBox. But I thought this was kind of close because this is a cube that's meant to be played only with two players, and it's only 90 cards. So you draft the entire cube when you play, and you draft it in five packs of nine between two players. You end up with half the cube in your pool every single time you draft it. And this particular 90-card cube has an interesting stipulation, which is that there are no creatures. It is a spell slinger cube, and not even creature tokens. There are, there's never going to be a creature in play, as I understand it, with any of the cards in this cube. So you're going to win by spell slinging. You know, this is like a classic wizard battle. Forget summoning creatures. You're just throwing spells back and forth. I'm a little bit offended by the lack of creatures. I think creatures are an important part of magic. But I do appreciate that, like you said, this cube designer really committed. I feel like we've seen a lot of people that are like, oh, I want to make the spells matter cube or the all spells cube. And they're like, well, first thing you get, call the herd and uh, raise the alarm. And it's like, well, Or like 
Are you Lanamar really Elf, doing and you're it? like, well, why are you putting Lanamar Elves in it? It's a Spellslinger cube. So I appreciate, yeah, that this is just a wizard battle. Two wizards locked in, a face-to-face, no creatures being summoned. I think that's a great lesson for people that are designing, especially cubes that are off the beaten path. It's just go really hard. Just go yeah. go way further than you think you have to go. Um, we'll talk more about battle boxes, obviously. One of the, my battle boxes I've built is a, well, it started actually is trying to be a Spellslinger battle box, and it morphed into a graveyard-themed battle box. And then when I actually got it down to like the first version of the list, every single card across all the colors and all the effects references the graveyard in some way. There is not a single non-thematic card in the list, and it plays pretty well. I like going deep on a theme just to like see where it lands. And if you end up deciding you need just to put some removal spells or something in there, by all means you can. But it's fun at first to really limit yourself to strict limitations to find out how far you can get on just specific kinds of effects. Constraints breed creativity. So I'm going to read this pack. It is only nine cards, and again... You know, whatever we don't get out of this pack, our opponent is going to get. So, hate drafting seems very relevant in this format to me. The description of the cube says that Brad expects both players to be five-ish colors. So, that's something to consider going in. The uh, The cube skews pretty heavily towards blue and red with very few green and white cards. So That makes sense to me. It does make some sense, certainly. So, that's something to keep in mind. But, um, yeah, I'm going to read the pack, Anthony. And i got to be honest, I don't know what I'm taking. So, I'm going to rely on you to... Spin a yarn for us for a while while I think about what my pick is going to be. Cards are Vivid Marsh, Reflecting Pool, Crackle with Power, Negate, Curse of Fool's Wisdom, Rampant Growth, The Marari Conjecture, Counter Squall, and Devil's Play. What so, are you going to take? I think there are, well, I guess maybe actually four different kinds of cards here, but I think the critical ones are because this cube has no creatures, you're not going to win that conventional way. You're going to have to win in some alternate condition with something like Crackle with Power to deal infinite damage. Or if we look in uh, the rest of the list, there's things like Fevered Visions or Mana Barbs that are going to slowly drain your opponent out. So I think you're going to have to win in sort of some of these incremental damage ways or by making a huge amount of mana to cast a fireball or by decking your opponent. So because of all of that, I like the idea of starting with uh, either Devil's Play or Crackle with Power, which are win conditions. Like, that's a way to end this uh, game. Uh, These I are think... both fireball variants, people that don't right. know. Devil's Play is basically just X under red to deal X damage, and it has flashback for X, red, red, red. And then Crackle with Power has got some complicated math going on, but basically amounts to a giant fireball that, after a certain point, scales up much more quickly. So the amount of mana you need to deal a lethal Crackle with Power is lower than that amount man you need to deal a lethal Devil's Play. But to deal like four or five damage, it costs a lot more mana up front. Right. And Curse of Fool's Wisdom is also another win condition, so that's pretty appealing. And it's got madness, which is always exciting to see. On the other hand, we have really efficient counter spells when your opponent is, their whole game plan is to go late and have one big spell to kill you all at once. Negate starts looking pretty good. So I actually feel like between those two, I think I'm on Negate over one of those burn spells or the other win conditions. And then lastly, we do have these uh, mana fixing and uh, more developmental cards like Rampant Growth. And that's a little bit harder to evaluate for me, uh, just like looking at the list. It makes sense to me that these are going to be slow games where players are not, you know, having aggressive starts. It's going to be about these developing and long game. Can you do this one big thing? So I see both the value of something like Rampant Growth, but I also wonder how much does the tempo of Rampant Growth matter versus just like having a a counterspell. And I think I'm starting on... Just taking the gate. This is a very novel environment. I do not know how to draft it properly, certainly. However, given what I know about this cube, I think I'm going to take fixing over basically everything. And here's my argument. 
There's only 15 fixing lands in the entire cube. So okay. we're talking about 90 cards. 15 of them are fixing lands. There's some other things that kind of fix for mana, like your Rampant Groves and Search for Tomorrows and stuff like that. But only 15 fixing lands. And I'm going to get half of this pool no matter what, right? I'm getting half the cards in this pool. I really want to have way more of those fixing lands than the rest of that pool. Because even if I had all 15, I'm still going to have a bunch of cards that I'm not playing in my pool, basically. Because I only got 15 fixing lands out of my 45 picks. Still these 30 cards. So even if I got every single fixing land, I can still cut the seven or eight worst cards. I can also imagine this being an environment where I want to play a much higher land count because I'm trying to get to big mana to cast things like giant fireballs. Maybe I'll play 18, 19, 20 lands here. So I don't know what, what, what I would take over fixing, but it's certainly nothing in this pack. Everything in this pack seems replaceable enough that I'm pretty happy just to take this fixing over pretty much everything. And I think if I were honestly drafting this cube, given that it's such a novel environment, I would begin with the assumption of like, let me try taking fixing over everything because I'm going to be forced to kind of play a lot of colors anyway and just hope I can actually cast my spells and see where that lands me. And maybe I am maybe I learned that it's not the right thing to do. Maybe if I'm taking only fixing, my opponent can take a very focused blue-red deck and not take any of those off-color spells and they get to, to own me that way. But, you know, fixing is already a very high pick and I think it's also a very high pick when you're essentially taking it away from your opponent because it's a zero-sum game. That's fair. When you frame it that way, yeah, it looks like there's not a lot of fixing, but you you are only drafting with one other player, so you're you are going to be able to get a fair number of on of average seven and a half fixing um, lands every draft. Plus, because uh, you are so this is just a normal two player draft, right? Like you open up a pack, you take one card, you pass it to me, I take a card, and I pass it back, right? I believe so. So if we have multiple lands in a pack, which is going to happen, most likely, I'll sort of start to gauge where you're taking fixing, and I will definitely have a lot of time to adjust after that. So I definitely think, like, if this is literally the first time I'm drafting this cube, I'm going to start with negate and hope I get back some of the actual win conditions. I will say if this draft format, too, it would behoove you if you were trying to optimize it to like pay careful attention to exactly what your opponent is taking yeah it is essentially a public information draft format with the exception of the first pick out of every pack right you don't know what your opponent got first but after that you can know every single card they take because you're going to see the pack and then you know pass it back and forth and so keeping careful track of that i imagine halfway through being able to like change your plan a little bit could be interesting right which is a complicated aspect i don't think we should go into it too deep but we talked a little bit about how grid drafting is great because it's a public information draft for two players and the reason why I say that is not because public information is inherently better, like a, an eight-player draft is great because of the hidden information. For sure. But with this kind of format where everything is technically public, but kind you of can't not. really see it all the time, yeah. means that the optimal strategy is just to pay a lot of attention and take a lot of notes if you're if you're willing to go that far, which that to me is not the, the most exciting gameplay. Yeah, but this is a really weird environment, and I would be excited to try it sometime because oh, totally. I would be very curious to see how this plays out. And we actually got a sort of, you know... We're way behind on our pack one pick ones after I found all those ones in the spam folder. And so Brad even sent a follow-up months later and said, like, hey, just re-upping this link and uh, want you to know this This has been super-duper fun. So so I, I would love to try this sometime. My starting assumption is going to be, let's just try taking fixing because that will allow me to have a little bit of flexibility. If I prioritize fixing, I'll have more flexibility in deck building, I feel like, to play the spells and effects that are actually synergistic with each other and work together as opposed to maybe getting forced to just play a bit of a mixture of all these different kinds of cards. But I'm really curious to see how this plays out. For sure. Battlebox, Anthony. Battlebox? You built a Battlebox before you built a cube, correct? This was your first foray into sandbox limited magic? It was. Uh, you definitely encouraged me to as well, but you already had a cube, so why did we need another one? Oh, boy. Little did we know. Little did we know. <laughs> Fast forward a couple years, and we are just... We're filthy with cubes around here. We're knee-deep in them. 
Where do you want to start on BattleBox? Uh, so I think that we should start by explaining the rules. We I should imagine. start by explaining the rules. So BattleBox is a great little sort of pickup game format. Uh, I think that's important just to understand like the motivation a little bit of why it's exciting is it requires zero setup. You have your BattleBox. You and another player just sit down and start playing. Nothing is required. So that's what was really appealing for me because we were playing a lot of limited and you know drafts would start late or you'd finish around quickly and so having something to grab and pick up some games with quickly was really exciting so the way that a battle box works is it's a set of cards like very much like a cube the exact number doesn't really matter i would say it doesn't matter at all at all (laughs) the list typically doesn't include lands but the way you play it is both players just have a stack of the battle box cards or you can even play it just with one stack in the middle of the table in between you and in addition to that stack of cards you also have a set of lands it's typically five basic lands and five guild gates and you can just play one of those lands every turn and you have this set of random spells and you play a game of magic i love it for the same reasons you mentioned it is and it's hard to overstate how amazing it is to just literally like in two seconds just start playing magic you you think like well how much work is there to like get out our constructed decks or whatever and the answer is a lot more no do you have commander oh i didn't bring my commander deck today then you got shuffle maybe you got d sideboard like it's amazing there's no i mean if you just like Shuffling a battle box is not, I've never even shuffled my box, right? I mean, maybe I'll like do it when I'm like idly sitting there, but that's insane. They, they just end up in a random order. Like, it, like at the end of a game, your graveyard is in essentially a random order. I just basically like put it back in the box, and by the time I get back around to a section, it's not like I remember what, what cards were, were drawn together or whatever, and you end up like splitting it up anyway. So it's so so fast, which is great, really really fun, and I should say this format is the most prominent players of this format brian demars maintains a uh, he actually calls his a danger room and not a battle box which is confusing well and he was the progenitor right and someone else not took the format and sure. renamed it i don't actually know the story behind it. i know some people refer to a set of constructed decks that are meant to play against each other as a battle box and that has caused some namespace pollution and so yeah i, I don't know where we're where our podcast is officially coming down on the on the language here but this is what i call a battle box and i think brian calls this a danger room so he updates his list with every set release on Channel Fireball. So he's probably the most prominent booster of this format. And then Ben Stark is also somebody who is notorious for having a battle box and really enjoying battle box. And to me, what's really interesting about it, I think it's like, there's two things to talk about. One is the actual gameplay of a battle box. And what are the pros and cons of that? What, what makes it interesting? What makes it dynamic? And then the other one is actually designing a battle box and, and the possibilities and limitations you have there. Starting with the gameplay, I think it's really interesting because... You know, there's no drafting, obviously, and there's a lot of variants. You're just drawing random cards from a stack of however many cards your box is. And mine's like 200, which is kind of a small battle box. I know, I think Brian's is like on the order of four or 500. Uh, people just, you know, just add cards to it. It doesn't matter because you're just playing at random. There's no size limitations at all. So there's really a lot of variants. You're drawing whatever you want. But that variance is mitigated by having no mana flood, no mana screw. You get perfect mana. You can right. play your cards whenever you want. You basically have to decide how you want to sequence your lands to play the cards out of your hand. And what that results into me is very skill-testing games that test a particular type of skill. And that type of skill is managing resources on the battlefield, sequencing, and like tight gameplay decisions that... Frankly, a lot of drafts just don't come up. Like, And I think even more like evaluating novel board states. Right. So, you know, you can imagine, oh, in a cube, there's so many different decks you can draft and you're always going to have different uh, board states because it's typically singleton. This is so much more because you're literally given all of these cards that the the, the battle box designer has chosen. Uh, you're having no selection of saying, well, I'm probably going to put more of the red cards before. You're going to draw a blue card. Then you're going to draw a green card. Then you're going to draw a five color gold card. 
and figuring out how to make all that work together is really interesting and challenging. So it's fun yeah. in that way that I'm, we're both describing it as like one of the most casual formats you can imagine, right? It's like it doesn't fit into any competitive play at all. And yet it also appeals to some of the most spiky players who right. are interested in focusing on these really minimal nuanced strategic decisions. Right. This is why Ben Stark really likes it because it's all about, all right, well, you're starting on a completely equal playing field and you have to use your gameplay skill to overcome your opponent and that is it that is all you got it's just your gameplay skill and how you sort of play those cards i mean in a regular draft you draft a deck even in cubes that are good stuff cubes where are all mid-range slog fest or whatever your deck still has some semblance of a plan right like right. you still approach turn zero with some idea of what you want your deck to do what a good hand looks like what a bad hand looks like and you are basically using that game plan as the foundation for all the decisions you make as the game opens up when you start playing Battle Box, you have nothing. <laughs> yeah. Right. And uh, I guess we, we didn't mention a couple small details. You only start with a four-card opening hand because you get to play these lands from outside the game. Uh, so they're essentially like having three lands in your opening hand. So, you know, you only start with four non-land cards. And we've always played no mulligans. You can't mulligan. You just take whatever four cards you're, you're given and have to play from there. And so from turn zero, you're instead of saying, well, I'm a control deck. I got to figure out if I have early interaction and then find a board wipe to turn the corner or something, or I'm an aggro deck, I want to make sure my hand is very threat dense and I can curve out. Instead, you're like, what cards did I get? Right. Oh, I got a one drop and a board wipe and a counter spell. How am I going to turn this into a successful plan to to win this game? Yeah, I think that's even even a better thing to, to highlight and focus on is it's not just about evaluating novel board states. It's making a plan from you know the most absurd set of cards that are not meant to be a plan together, right? Yeah, and we'll talk more about that when we get to the design section because there are certainly types of cards that behave way differently in Battlebox than they do in other types of limited environments that you may choose to omit for those reasons or just you know play very strangely. But to me, it almost feels like training. I almost feel like when I'm playing Battlebox, I'm focusing on one aspect of playing Magic. We're taking mulligan decisions, we're taking drafting, we're taking deck building, we're taking all these other aspects of playing the game Man and we're screw. throwing them out. Man all this other stuff. Like It's like... You're a good player if you manage all these things, and we're ignoring all that. Everybody starts with no mulligans, no mana screw, no drafting, no deck building, and we're just focusing on here are the cards you dealt, how are you going to win the game based on what your opponent is doing, the cards in your hand, and how you sequence your plays and make those decisions. And I love it for that reason. I, to me, it's a, it's, a, it's a unique experience that I don't get from playing any other kind of magic where it's like it's kind of like this raw battle of just uh, attrition and resources and being able to, to figure out novel board states and make strategic decisions to advance your game plan. I think we sort of described the rules. There are a couple other conventions that I think it's worth touching on Yeah. Uh, before we get too deep into it. So across the board, we generally see people follow a couple rules when they're building their box. And, and the key ones are no ramp. So no ways to accelerate your resources, something like rampant growth or uh, mana rocks, um, which again sort of just leans into that. You have a fixed amount of uh, resources. We're kind of eliminating that mana screw, mana flood, or those tempo questions from the game. It's It's just about what you can do with those resources. And on the flip side, no interacting with those lands, right? Everybody right. gets 10 lands by default. No stone rains, no way to bounce lands. Basically, like, mana is sacrosanct. And again, this is not a hard and fast rule. You certainly could build a battle box where this was something that was up for debate and you could play with people's lands. But most people conventionally don't do that because they want this to be a given. This is like the foundation you're building on top of. Conventionally, battle boxes also exclude any tutors, so cards that search the library, which, again, that fits really neatly into the sort of, this is a quick pickup game, it's going to be fast. Also, it would be insane if you draw a demonic tutor. It's like, well, here's the thousand <laughs> random cards. <laughs> Go find, find the, the one, one you that's want. good for you. Uh, that would be a little bit of a logistical nightmare and wouldn't really be fun, I don't think. No, not 
after the first time, certainly. No shuffle effects is another one, which almost always comes along with some kind of tutoring, but nothing that will cause you to like go into your library at all. Like The library right. is just not a zone you can interact with other than drawing cards off the top of it. Um, even so scrying one... gets a little weird to me because if you scry to the bottom... Usually, I think I do have, or maybe I, I think I cut them, but I originally had a couple scry cards in my battle box, and it just felt kind of weird. It was like, well, just put that card away. Because oftentimes, right. oftentimes, like, so my box, we play with separate decks. And this is one of the places I think there's maybe the most diversity. Like, some people believe battle boxes about playing with a single deck and using things like scries and top deck manipulation to, like, add another layer to the game. When I built mine, I was like, I'm just going to ignore all of that and say everyone gets their own deck. And because of that, like, you might just have 10 cards in your deck. When you need more, you just get more out of the box. And so it's weird to have a scry when your deck is an arbitrary size because now it's like, well, do I put it on bottom? And it's like, no, you just put it away forever. So I- I've eliminated anything that interacts with the library at all other than drawing cards because it just is weird if you have anything like that. So I actually really enjoy playing with a sort of shared deck and some top deck manipulation. Uh, in my in- initial battle box, this was a-, a pretty big theme, actually. So a lot of things that... Especially maybe not scribe, but you reorder the top of your library. Things like uh, Spire Owl, I think it's called. I also really just like playing with a shared deck just because it is like how much faster and more feeling like this is an impromptu thing can you get than you plop the deck in the middle of the table. You say, here's 10 lands, draw four cards, let's play a game. Uh, so I really like it for that minimal setup. In my next iteration, so I'm actively rebuilding my battle box, uh, I am going to avoid a lot of that just because... I think it's very cool and very novel, you know, especially with stuff like uh, memory lapse and stuff where it's like, I'll counter your creature and then I'll draw it next turn is very cool and novel, but is actually not what I'm interested in right now. Yeah, it's funny. Like, I know that you built your regular cube, not as a response to, but in the context of like, I had a vintage cube in the play group that was very powerful. And you're like, well, there's no reason to do anything like that when I built my first cube. And so you built your regular cube, which was at a lower power level. You had the first battle box in the play group, and you leaned pretty heavily into this top deck manipulation thing, which I agree is fun. I think I thought it was really interesting and like adds a lot of interesting depth when you don't have any control over what you're going to draw, except when you have this weird top deck battle where you start playing this game of like thinking about the future plays with right. your opponent. Scry three especially gets very weird, and when you scry three and your opponent cycles at end of turn, that's interesting gameplay. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot to unpack there. I I like it a lot. I don't mean to to drag it at all. I think it's a lot of fun. But when I put my battle box, it was like, well, we already have that. You already have the battle box where right. you're playing Spiral and you're playing. You like you did the Scryfall search for all the effects that play with the top of the library in fun ways, and they were all in there. <laughs> they pretty much all in there. <laughs> Uh, and so I was like, let me just ignore that and try doing one where that's not even a factor at all. Uh, and that's, that, that's kind of the place I started from with my own battle box. So I think that uh, a couple key things change in terms of the gameplay and the power level of individual cards that's uh, really important to sort of what gives battle boxes identity. Something actually that's really interesting is you could put whatever cards you want in the battle box from any of the cards in Magic, right? Well, yeah, we talked about all those conventions. Like, it's weird to put Demonic Tutor sure, in there. So there's, there's weird there's to put a Fetch Land in there. But even just because of the way that some of the card evaluations change and the way cards change in function, uh, if you go on the cube map, all the battle boxes are really closely grouped because there are sim- certain cards that just work so much better. So some of the things that are, I think, really important to notice is that the box typically doesn't include any lands, which just means you're effectively drawing like 60% more cards because that 40% of cards you would be drawing that are lands are now just more real cards. So that both means you just have access to more resources than you would in a normal game of Magic. Or, you know, think about another way you're drawing twice as much because you have access to a land to play plus a card you draw per turn. Right. It also means that the power level of uh, cards like Divination that just draw you more cards goes way up because 
you're not drawing a card and maybe a land. You're always drawing two spells. Always drawing you action, and you can also always hit your land drops. Right. That's the next key. So you're never going to miss land drops. You're going to get all the way up to 10. Well, well I do sometimes forget. <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> play my land Ooh, in Battle Blocks. Fair point. I've forgotten a couple times, too. <laughs> it comes up quite a bit, actually. But because of that, what that actually means is that the way cards are normally costed, more expensive cards can be more powerful because you don't, in a normal game of Magic, hit your sixth land on turn six. You Basically, You hit it on turn eight, and you don't hit your seventh land on turn seven. You hit it on turn 12, or, you know, mm-hmm. it, it scales up bigger and bigger. So in a battle box where you could just play a land per turn, you're always going to hit your sixth man on turn six, which means the more expensive spells also become much, much more powerful. Yeah, that's, I think, one of the interesting lessons you learn from playing and designing a battle box is how much the mana value of cards is weighted on that assumption that, like, you're going to have your first two lands, most of the time you're third on time. As soon as you get to four, five, six, the cards are very much costed, like, yeah, you're not going to hit miss on time most of the time, right? Like, in most games, you are not playing your fifth land on turn five and just going into a five drop. That's just not how magic works. You're most often going to have some turn where you stumble a little bit. And so the cards are costed because they are a much bigger investment than it actually seems at first. Like, I think very new players to Magic are like, oh, well, a six drop should be twice as good as a three drop. But it's like, no, no. Six drop should be much more than twice as good as a three drop. Otherwise, uh, something's gone horribly wrong. So the last really big uh, aspect of this is you're not controlling which cards you're playing together. Compare that to a cube where you're drafting. You can support a huge variety of different types of cards. You can say, well, here's all these really cheap, efficient red cards that all work together because you're going to get your opponent dead quickly. Uh, And here's these like slow control cards that have a a plan for early interaction. You don't get to do that in Battlebox. You're just drawing from the set of all kinds of cards, which means a lot of those more narrow cards that require a lot of specific context to work, like very efficient red one drops and things like that, it can end up just being dead cards, which means I think all of this sort of adds up to the kinds of things that people are generally looking for in a battle box is cheaper cards generally, because we have that free built-in card advantage. And also uh, the curve of your box is the curve of everyone's deck. Like right. in a cube, you can have a few more expensive cards and people just, totally, just yeah. choose not to play them if they want to prioritize a lower curve. There's no choice to not play a card here. You just have to play every card you're right. drawn. And so if you have a higher curving box... You end up with a lot of games where people are like, well, land go for three or four turns each, and then we'll just start throwing haymakers and see who wins, which is not as much fun as making some tight decisions about what's on board. Right, and also considering that sort of power level skewing, it makes sense to focus the power level on the cheaper cards, because those are the ones that are not going to get that sort of obscene boost. Uh, And similarly, a lot of battle box designers will avoid just sort of pure card advantage spells, so just like opportunity or divination that just says draw a bunch of cards, because those are pretty powerful, they're not very interactive, and you know, especially the expensive ones, like we're saying, you're going to be able to cast them. And also there's somewhat, I feel, at odds with kind of the spirit of battle box which is like play with the cards you draw like right here's some cards make a game plan out of it and when some of your cards usually draw more cards and give you more options to make more of a different game plan it kind of takes away a little bit of the spirit of the game to me to me the battle box is very much like yeah guess what you got a two drop and a board wipe and a burn spell and a combat trick figure out what you're going to do with that you know Right. So I do think, though, that really flexible cards are still valuable. So we talked about a card that only makes sense on turn one in the context of another cards that are also good in turn one. Those don't tend to function as well, but slightly more flexible things, like especially cards that have kicker or cycling or multiple modes, give you enough flexibility to actually make a reasonable plan out of it. Yeah. Flexible cards, I think, are king. I guess we should talk a little bit about maybe our respective battle boxes. I have two. My first battle box, the one I actually have in paper is like a core set battle box because it's so easy to pick up and start playing i designed it with the idea of 
trying to get people into magic. Good for players that are new to the game. So I have no non-evergreen mechanics in the battle box, except for Prowess, which once was an evergreen mechanic. It is no longer, but I really like. And I try to focus on relatively simple cards. So it's like a core set battle box. And there's no other stipulations beyond that. And then I do have this graveyard battle box. And we'll talk a little bit more about, I think, the virtues of designing a novel and more outside of the outside of the box battle boxes, more, more off the beaten path battle boxes. But uh, those are the two that I have. And that's kind of the, the place I started from when I was designing them. Yeah, and my initial one that I designed years ago, uh, like we mentioned, was very much lower power, but leaning into that sort of top deck manipulation, very focused on combat, which is honestly, I think, pretty typical. Like, when we're talking about you can't have this synergistic plan, a plan that most cards can play, like an axis that most cards in most magic sets can play on, is uh, just creatures and combat. So I think battle boxes do tend to sort of be focused uh, in that direction. And then the one I'm actually currently trying to rebuild now that we're optimistically trying to get back to playing some paper magic uh, is much more similar to what you're calling your core set one, where it's definitely focused on cheap, flexible, and interactive cards. Is there anything else gameplay-wise we should touch on? Like, we talked about how it is, like, focusing on a specific skill, how it really hones in on that specific skill and challenges you to sequence plays correctly and come up with a game plan on the fly and evaluate novel board states. We talked about some of the cards that are evaluated differently. I guess we should maybe say that I think even more so than in a cube, a flat power level or a close to flat power level is really important in Battle Box because I agree, yeah. In cubes, you know, Retail Limited does not have a flat power level, and that's fine because people are drafting their decks. They get to like pick the best cards out of the packs, and everybody gets, you know, within some range of variance, uh, equal enough crack at broken cards in a, in a cube with broken cards. It's okay to have a power cube because everyone's going to take the Mox or Black Lotus pack one, pick one, and it's unlikely that someone's going to get six of them or whatever. And you most often still have to draft a plan. It's like, sure, you drafted this seven drop but you had to form a game plan to be able to get to the point where you're casting your seven drop in a game of standard limited uh whereas here it's just like oh it's turn seven i drew the seven drop good game <laughs> right yeah so in, in battle box because your players don't have that autonomy at all they just have to play the cards they're given i think it's especially important to have a pretty rigid narrow power band because otherwise games are just lost on having the wrong cards and that's not particularly fun if your opponent just has more powerful cards than you Right. I would color what you were saying about it being a very spiky format a little bit, just in that I totally agree that there is a lot to explore for a real spike in generating a plan from really novel hands and board states. Uh, but I, I think players of all walks and psychographics enjoy the that novel experience. Oh, so for sure. just have to be about being a spike. You can also just be like, wow, I've never seen this card before. That's pretty exciting. Yeah, I, I guess I maybe took for granted. I assumed that because of the, the, the casual baseline, nature of yeah. it, that like people would assume it was approachable for people that were not super enfranchised, not super competitive. And so uh, I was kind of making the case that like if you're really enfranchised in the game and you are competitive, you might think novice is a casual format, not for me. It actually has a lot for you as well. In addition to having a lot for people that don't have a magic collection and want to still play. And you know you, you have two decks that are not at the same power level, so you can't play constructed together. All the same reasons we like cube, but much less overhead, much less work. Much easier to just pick up and do, uh, which is which is I think a, a really great tool to have for uh, for playing Magic with people. I want to talk a little bit about just the design of battle boxes because in addition to really enjoying playing them for all the reasons we talked about, I think battle boxes are a great sandbox to learn about broader concepts in game design and cube design that uh, offer sometimes a much more direct line to how your design decisions impact the environment. And I say that because. In drafted environments, there is a lot of this meta consideration we talk about all the time, right? Like, Wax figured out a couple weekends ago that there was a broken deck of a Turbo Cube and drafted it, and therefore, now, if you had kept those cards in the Turbo Cube, 
everyone sitting down at the table that knew that was a broken neck would be looking for it. In the Degenerate Microcube, for a long time, Oko and Ensnaring Bridge were both in the cube, but no one drafted them together because nobody thought to draft Oko and Ensnaring Bridge together. Turns out Oko Bridge is kind of a disgusting combo. Now that's like a meta-defining deck in the Degenerate Microcube, and so now that changes how people draft it. People always draft with their biases and assumptions in place, which makes it very hard as a cube designer to say, I'm trying to design an environment. I want to make certain things work. If those things don't align with the biases of your players, they might just drive kind of sideways across what you're trying to get the cube to do, which is a good, important lesson to learn too, because if people don't realize your theme or your theme doesn't show up in the draft, that's something to to take to heart and to try and fix as well. But if you're just trying to get in some reps with like, I want to see how these cards play together. I've made a choice as a designer to play these cards and I want to see how they interact with each other. Doing it in a battle box form is much lower barrier to entry and people have to play with the cards. They're, they're given the cards, they're put in their hand, a card that someone would never draft or they would always leave on their sideboard still gets cast, still you know sees play. And I think it's a much more direct way sometimes to play with the same ideas we play with in cube design, but in a much more accessible and direct way. Yeah, I think there are certain cards, especially that in my own cube, I think are much better than people give them credit, but they just don't end up getting played. So it's cool yeah. to, be able to put it into a battle box and be like, hey, look, when you draw giant growth, you will notice that there are board states where it's very relevant. Yeah, and that, that's just, I think that's true of all cubes, right? We all, I think, have a vision of our cube and what we want it to be, and our players just don't agree. And maybe our players are wrong, maybe we're wrong, maybe we're both a little wrong. And that is a layer of cube design that is really challenging. It's a perennial challenge of being a cube designer to wrestle with that and try and figure out how you reconcile the actual played experience of an environment with your envisioning of what it should be with the biases of the players that are doing it. And that's all taken off the table completely in BattleBox. You just get the cards and you start playing with them. So I really like it for that reason. I think it's a great way also to explore specific kinds of themes. So one of the limitations of a BattleBox is you can't include very thematic and conflicting cards. Like if you had a BattleBox that you wanted to have a Spellslinger deck in, and a Zoo deck, and a Lands Matter deck, and whatever. Guess what? You're playing the Spells Matter Zoo land deck. Yeah, in reality, most of the time, your players are just going to draw weird payoffs for deck A, and enablers for deck B, and just have this kind of weird soup. And so you're kind of forced to like bring everything towards the center, like baseline of playability and flexibility and power level. But... You can design a whole battle box that is around a specific theme. So we talked now about this creature list, spells matter cube, which could also, I think, very easily be a battle box. This list, take the lands out. You could just basically play it as a battle box. It'd be pretty interesting, though the fireballs. <laughs> I don't know. I'd be curious to see how that would go. But if you really want to just get some reps in with a type of theme, you could just build a whole battle box that is about that theme. And you're basically playing the mirror every time, right? Like, here is my lands matter battle box which is actually a weird theme to choose given that the lands are not in the deck and it's a little bit different. It's a bad example. Here's my Spells Matter battle box. So here's my Enchantress battle box. You're playing the mirror every time, but you get to just really get in reps with this particular theme and explore what makes it tick, what kinds of cards work, what kinds of cards don't work, and figure out how to unpack that. So that's the kind of experience I have with my graveyard battle box where I found that I was able to fill out all of the sort of bread and butter effects that you want in a normal game of Magic. Like some reasonable threats, some removal, some interaction, that kind of stuff. It all have it be thematic on the graveyard and how that sort of changed the, the gameplay and how it makes different cards playable or less playable. Uh, it's a very interesting experience as a designer to 
basically have just direct control over that knob and, and see how it feels. I do think it's worth calling out that graveyard theme specifically is something that does work really well. Something that I really enjoy in Battlebox, we talked a little bit about flexibility, is cards like cycling and cards that uh, let you draw and discard or, you know, looting and rummaging, things like that, that do give you some amount of control to try and shape a plan and maybe get rid of a thing here or there that doesn't quite fit it. Yeah, and I still remember you... when you were talking about famous looting in your Battlebox and you were like, I like this card because... You can decide, okay, if I think I'm the proactive deck by turn three because of what my opponent has done and what I've done and what I've drawn, a card like Faithless Looting gives you the option to draw a couple cards, and you're, you're down a card, right, when you cast Faithless Looting, right. but what you importantly do is you get rid of a bunch of cards that are off plan. Like, I think I'm proactive. Let me get rid of this board wipe. Let me get rid of this seven drop, and let me instead just play, get draw more cheap cards and kind of lean into that plan. Or, of course, vice versa. If you think your opponent's being proactive, you can use your Faithless Looting to dig for removal, dig for interaction, whatever you need to do. I love that idea in Battlebox that like a little bit of looting, a little bit of cycling, a little bit of one for one card selection or even over one card selection where you're going down on actual raw cards uh, can really help shape a plan. And because of that, if you're interested in having a, a, a noticeable density of those kinds of effects, that just fits really nicely with a lot of the graveyard interactions that it fits well with like madness or uh, things that can come back from the graveyard. Yeah. So one of my tips for new cube designers always is to basically start as small as possible I really like small cubes because it's much less work. It's much less sleeving. It's much less money to get the cards to actually start playing them. And you also have just a much more direct control over what the experience is like. And a battle box is a great, I think, on-ramp to a cube. Uh, I think if you're thinking about designing a cube, but you're overwhelmed by the prospect of putting enough cards together to draft with people, you don't necessarily like the two-player draft formats that exist or the four-player draft formats, just start with the battle box. And, you know, you have some limitations there. You have to avoid the super synergistic stuff. You have to avoid the tutors and shuffle effects and things like that. But you still have a lot of room to explore themes and explore the kind of gameplay you want to encourage. And then if that goes great and you want to expand it to a cube, you have a great little foundation that you've gotten a bunch of testing and a bunch of reps with these cards, and you can easily expand it. And potentially also buy in from other players in your playgroup. Yeah. And there's no reason that a battle box can't be 50 cards, 60 cards. Like, you could totally do it. Uh, I mean, it has to be big enough that you don't run out of cards in the game because it'd be weird to <laughs> essentially deck. Uh, whoever whoever draws the last card decks, that would be a fun metagame. <laughs> fun little metagame. So it's big enough you're not going to run out of cards over the course of the game. But anything over that size, and there's no reason that you couldn't build a battle box that small. Obviously, the games are going to be pretty consistent with a really small battle box. Like game to game, you're going to see a lot of the same cards because there's very little variation in the, the size of that pool. But then you can always just add cards if you feel like you've gotten it down. Or play a bunch of games with a really small pool and get it really tightly tuned. Get, get those power outliers cut. Get those ones that are a little bit less powerful and replace them with better things and narrow that power level band, really get the kind of gameplay you want, and then build from there kind of iteratively. I think it's one of the best, most approachable ways to begin doing the kind of design work that I find exciting about cube design. Yeah, and I, I can say from experience, that's exactly the course that I took. All right, should we just, you know, indulge ourselves and talk about our favorite cards in our battle boxes? Uh, yeah, go for it. All right, I want to start by saying that my battle box gave me an opportunity to do something I've wanted to do in Magic for as long as I can remember learning about this card, which is I've always wanted an environment where I can play Kiki-Jiki for value. <laughs> and the problem with Kiki-Jiki is that if it's in a drafted environment, everybody assumes there's Kiki combo present. And there's no constructed format where you can play Kiki-Jiki for value. I guess maybe some weird EDH decks could make it happen. I just wanted an environment where, you know, Kiki-Jiki was used kind of as, I guess, the spirit of the card would imply, which is like copying EDB triggers, giving you a copy of your best creature every turn, and just being this kind of scalable threat. And Battlebox gave me the perfect place to do that. So Kiki-Jiki is one of my favorite cards in my Battlebox. 
And the triple red is we haven't talked a lot about mana costs, but you know because you have access to usually an either allied or enemy cycle of tapped lands and one of each basic, you have three mana sources of each color in your land pool. And so in order to play that Kiki Jiki on curve, I will have to already have played my two tapped red sources before turn five, which either means I knew Kiki Jiki was coming, it was in my opening hand and I was planning for it and I was taking turns off to play those tap lands. Or if I draw it late, I have to take a couple turns off to get those tap lands down, which I think is interesting tension. So I really look for putting power outliers at the double and especially triple pip spots on my curve in my battle box and kiki jiki fits the bill perfectly it's very powerful it's one of the more powerful cards in my battle box but it is triple red and it's powerful in a way that is flexible every game some games you get to go off and copy a meteor golem over and over again some games you just make another copy of a evasive threat and kill your opponent in two turns and i'm just thrilled that battle box offered me an opportunity to play this card in the way i've always wanted to play it which is not degenerately Man, I'm looking at my old list compared with this new list that I started in the last couple of weeks, and I am not sad to leave a lot of this behind. Uh, I, I love that battle box, but this new one's going to be a lot tighter, I think. All right, give us a couple of your favorite cards. So one of my favorite, this is a whole cycle of cards, actually, but there are a few that are particularly appealing, uh, is the Apprentice cycle from, I believe this is Invasion. Mm-hmm. Uh, so one of them is Thornscape Apprentice. It's green for a 1-1. It has white tap creature and red tar creature gains first strike until end of turn. And this, to me, is like the perfect example of it's cheap, and I want as many cheap cards i really want to lower the curve as much as i can for all the reasons we talked about and this also then being a mana sink that does a variety of different things just gives you so much complexity and interesting opportunities to build a plan around combat that's a card on my own box as well i really love thorinscape apprentice and it's a it's a great cycle and it's a good example of another aspect of battle boxes which is i would call it a con probably which is that Color identity is not a factor. Like, right, colors yeah. literally do not matter basically at all. I guess it only matters in the sense that, you know, you have to play your lands to cast the spells that you have in your hand. And so you're unlikely to be able to curve like a double white spell into a double blue spell just because it's hard to play your mana that way. And so maybe you can make some argument that, like, if you start with your white red tapped land, you're going to be playing something more proactive and white red. But really, like, color is not a factor. And so the other cards that go up really significantly in power level are gold cards because. You always have perfect mana. You always have the exactly, color of, yeah. of lands you want. And so a Thornscape Apprentice is a great example of a card that in Battle Box is just a strict upgrade over something like Gideon's Lawkeeper or one of these sort of white tapper creatures. Because it's also a one drop. It also taps a creature, but it has this other ability to give something first strike with threat of activation. And it, it's much better because it is across three colors, which is a limitation in draft, a limitation in constructed magic. But in Battle Box, it's just a freebie. You just get to, you know, get access to all those colors of mana whenever you want them. And so it just gets a lot better. Exactly, yeah. In a similar vein, there's also a uh, or multiple cycles even of battle mages. So these are generally three mana spells. So Bant Battle Mage is an example. Two and a white. Uh, it's a two two. So three mana two two. You can tune your power, your battle box to whatever kind of power level you're interested in. You could definitely go all the way up to the point where Kiki Jiki would not be a power outlier at all. My list is definitely much lower powered, which I feel like fits a lot of my you know gameplay goals. So a three mana two two, I think in this box is going to be a fine card, and then it has similar to the Apprentice's two abilities. Uh, green and tapped heart creature gains trample until end of turn, and blue and tapped heart creature gains flying until end of turn. So again, it's just this nice little menu of different options depending on what the situation is that will allow you to structure combat. I'm having a hard time picking out just the... I'm not, I don't want to talk about too many individual cards, but there's so many I want to talk about because I think a lot of cube designers will share this feeling. 
one of the most exciting things to me about Cube, Battlebox, all these formats is getting a place for these cards to shine where they otherwise don't have a place to shine. Absolutely, yeah. And finding the homes for these cards is so satisfying. And one such card that I ad- admit is a huge power outlier in my battle box, but I refuse to cut because no one's ever heard of it. And when they draw it in the battle box, they look at it and go, what the heck does this card do? And they go, I think it seems kind of good. And then they play it and go, oh, this card's broken, is Field Surgeon. Field Surgeon is one and a white for a 1-1 creature cleric. And it has a little ability, tap an untapped creature you control to prevent the next one damage to target creature this turn. And there is no bigger wrench to throw into combat than a field surgeon it can activate its ability if the turn comes into play because it's tap an untapped creature it can include itself it doesn't have to have it, it can do that without haste and it immediately just turns combat into a nightmare for your opponent because you can prevent n amount of damage to n amount of targets uh whenever you tap your creatures and it's just incredibly powerful and as soon as your opponents uh can't trade with your creatures in combat your board just gets wider and wider and it leads to some really horrible games of magic i think it's great (laughs) in moderation if i was playing my battle box you know two times a week i would probably have cut field surgeon by now because it can be very groan inducing but i just love it it's a card no one's ever heard of some urza's legacy common i have no idea if there's ever saw any kind of constructed play i imagine it was a headache and urza's legacy limited maybe i don't even know what that format was like but it's just a really cool card that does broken stuff kind of another one i really like is lean and battle mage do you know oh, this guy this this is i put this one in my box because of how much fun i had playing it in yours so it's a four mana two three not great uh, but it has tap to give target creature plus one plus one until it turn. And whenever you play a spell, any spell, untap lean and battle mage. So similarly, I just love the way this plays, like both plays into combat, but also plays into sequencing your turn a certain way. And every instant in your card in your hand suddenly turns into a combat trick to some degree. Yeah. Uh, so figuring out, is there a way you can actually, you know, keep hold on to some of these cards that uh, are, you know, cantrips and things like that uh, to set up a big combat and, and maneuver the game to your advantage. Yeah, Battle Mage is so fun. And uh, and it's got battle right in the name. It's true, it does. I, I have a small sort of sub-theme, I would say, in my battle box of caring about the power and toughness of creatures because I think it's interesting to turn combat tricks and turn plus one, plus one counters and turn things like Leon and Battle Mage into more than just plus one, plus one. So I have a couple of things that do stuff based on their power when they die or on an activated ability. And that interacts really interestingly with Battle Mage where you get these sort of compounding trees of complexity that just make for a very powerful turn, even though each individual card is relatively simple and unassuming. I've got a couple more here I just got to talk about. I love these cards so much. Another card I was thrilled to find a home for is a card I have a lot of affection for when I was playing as a kid, and it's Fires of Yavi Maya. This is a, oh yeah, I mean that card's an all star in all kinds of formats, right? This is one. It, I mean it was. This is one red green for an enchantment that gives all creatures you control haste, and you can sacrifice Fires of Yavi Maya to give target creature plus two plus two until end of turn. This saw a lot of constructed play back in Invasion Block, and was a very powerful card at the time, specifically in the like. Sapperling Burst deck, if I remember correctly, with Sapperling Burst and Blastoderms, giving those things haste was kind of messed up. First of all, I love haste in Battle Box because it makes it harder for your opponent to just assume, well, you know, I can tell on board I'm okay, I'm not going to get attacked for a lot next turn, I'm just going to, you know, be the aggressor. There's a little bit of a, a question in the back of their mind, like, can they do something with haste? And then that threat of activation of at any time being able to pump something just by sacrificing this, again, makes combat complicated. Combat is, is a... The, the actual complexity of combat itself is one of the core themes of my battle box. And this plays in perfectly to that where it's like, yeah, it's going to everything I control haste. And at some point it's going to effectively work like a removal spell in combat, because it's rare that you're going to be able to sacrifice his fires and not eat something in combat though. It's on board. So your opponent can hold up removal. They can hold up interaction, a bounce spell or something and kind of fizzle that plan. 
it just has a lot of interesting compounding lines of play that flow forth from the from the rules text on the card. All right, I've got another simple one. Uh, Kite Sail Cleric. This is actually a pretty new card from, uh, I remember the name of the set. Zendikar Rising. Zendikar Rising. Uh, it's one mana for a 1-1, one, one, one white mana for a 1-1 one, one with flying as kicker for three. If you kick it, tap up to two target creatures. So this is, again, just the, the combination of being a cheap thing that has evasion, so it still can do something at any point in the game, but it also is a four-mana spell that can just be a huge tempo play and, and uh, get a bunch of damage through. I think it's just a really nice package for uh, a card that isn't going to take over the game, but scales pretty well with the whole game. I'm going to limit myself to one more. I'm just going to mention a couple I'm not going to talk about. <laughs> so people go check them out. Check out Do or Die. I love Do or Die in this environment. I think it's super cool. Is that the one that a player sacrifices half their creatures? It's like a factor fiction variant, but for edict. Yeah, they, like one player separates into piles, the other player oh, yeah. chooses which which pile to keep. Uh, which is not in a vacuum a very powerful card, but it, I think it's really interesting in battle box and actually has a lot of a lot of potential power for only two mana. Also, uh, it's a great place. I love Razorfin Hunter in my cube, one of my favorite cards. Goblin Legionnaire, a lot of cool old gold cards that I think don't really have a home but work really well here. And the last card I will talk about at length is uh, one of my favorite cards in the battle box. And again, admittedly, a bit of a power outlier, but Fiery Justice is uh, perfect in this environment. Again, because gold cards get a lot more castable. This is red, green, white, full Naya for a sorcery. It deals five damage divided as you choose among any number of target creatures or players, and target opponent gains five life. That card is extremely powerful in yeah. a low-powered battle box. I don't know how low-powered my battle box is. I think it's a bit of a power-level outlier, but I've also seen it, you know, resolve and still get beat. Uh, it's just, it's a oftentimes kind of a one-sided board wipe. Uh, it's a sorcery, so you can't do mess up stuff with it in combat, but if there's damage on creatures marked, second, second main phase, you can do stuff with it. And honestly, it's just an old gold card that the time-shifted foil from Time Spiral is a, one of the most beautiful magic cards, uh, I think, in existence. And it's only like 10 bucks or something. I think it's a really special, cool card people should get. But there's no really to play. It's not very good anywhere else. But in this environment, it's quite potent. Yeah, you better pick those up now. You've uh, let the secret out. Fiery Justice, time-shifted spike incoming. We'll put the list to our battle box in the show notes. Mine was last updated in 2019. So I, I stand by the design of the of the battle box and I think it still kind of works for its goals but there's a lot of new cards that I think would uh, would be at home there that are not in there because I haven't been updating it reliably you're working on a new list we'll put both of your battle box lists in the show notes does yeah, that work for I would, you? I would definitely not stand by the design of the old one uh, I think it's an interesting artifact though of sort of the history of the design process Zalfir and Decoy another great card I have a chance <laughs> to talk about Ooh. Uh, but it is funny to just sort of having you know thought about this a lot and done it a couple times designing this new battle box it was just like oh yeah here's everything I got here's like the things that I'm still interested in let's get those together and fill out a few things and it went very quickly so it's not quite there yet but it's close I guess I want to give one shout out to some, back when I was more invested in maintaining and updating my battle box, I spent a lot of time talking online with uh, with the user Curly, who I have not seen around any of the cube discourse in years. Curly, I think, has bowed out a little bit. But this is a idea I, I very much stole from Curly, which is that he notoriously chose one card to be sort of the the flagship of the power level of his battle box. And again, the idea here is you want to try and narrow that power level band as much as possible and the cards can be drawn in any combination so the question was just like if i have this card and my opponent has x card compared to every other card in the battle box if you're trying to figure out if a card's too good or too bad you know always weigh it against this one card just how reasonable is that exchange and uh, his box was originally built around sarah's angel he was like i want sarah's angel to be you know my my baseline for power level that's the card i want to be like good and so i'm not going to run stuff that is 
on its face much more efficient, much better than Zera Angel. I'm not going to run stuff that's on its face much worse, much less efficient. I think that's a cool little hack to think about a battle box. And it works better in battle box than it does in cube because in cube, context is so important, right? Like, is Opt better than Sarah Angel? It entirely depends on the deck you've drafted and the environment you're playing and all that kind of stuff. In battle box, you can much more easily answer that question because there is no drafted context like you're just playing the cards at random so is this card better just, than that you're card? playing all the cards in the same context rather than right, separating exactly. that separating them out into different sub contexts right so i think that's a cool little hack if you're thinking about making a battle box maybe start thinking about things that way just what's your what's your key card going to be and how can you compare the card the power level of all the cards to it what's your key card you know, it started out as Sarah Angel 2 because I really admired Curly's Cube. And uh, and since then, I, I don't have one really anymore. But that was a, a, a... I still have Sarah Angel in my battle box, but I think it is below power level. I kind of include it because I like the flavor and like including iconic cards that are simple mechanically. I don't really have one anymore at this point, but that was important to me at the time. When I started, I kind of stole that idea. I was like, yeah, sure, Sarah Angel. Let's measure everything against Sarah Angel. And then I started adding things like Kiki Jiki and Fiery Justice. And I was like, well, Sarah sure. Angel's looking yeah. a little sus now. <laughs> Fair enough. So I think a lot of people will listen to this and immediately think, oh my god, I hate getting mana screwed, mana flooded. You fixed magic. And I do think that I want to take a second to... You want to preemptively rain on the parade? <laughs> uh, no, no, no. I, so Battlebox is great. I think everyone should consider you know, playing it if their friend has a Battlebox or building your own. But I do want to just say that I don't think Battlebox is the way I want to play magic all the time. I think that that variance actually is really important. The skill of drafting a different mana base for different kinds of decks is a ton of fun and adds so much richness to the game. I, I really think that we're not fixing anything by eliminating that. But like we talked about before, we are highlighting different aspects of the game and letting you really focus on not that part of it and reduce that kind of variance so you can explore other kinds of strategic opportunity. Yeah, I mean, I think you are fixing something, but it's 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 in order to focus on something else and there are knock-on effects of that, right? Like, I, I can understand being frustrated by the mana system and if you are really frustrated by the mana system, you might prefer this way to play Magic because it doesn't have possible. that effect. And the knock-on effects are you don't get to draft a deck with a plan. You have to play this kind of heads-up, like, figure-out-your-plan-as-you're-going type of magic. And th that's the sort of cost of it. Like, I mean, I think the cost is honestly so much bigger than that. I think that the mana system is one of the greatest assets of this game, and I don't think we thank Richard Garfield enough for it. It just adds so much tension between how much risk do you want from playing more colors versus the reward of consistency. Right. And the You're losing every really aspect important. of everything about deck building you are losing right. here, which is... I think for a lot of players, a big part of what's interesting about Magic. But if you are not compelled by those sorts of things and the tensions of putting cards of two different colors in your deck and trying to shore up weaknesses and lean into strengths and all those kinds of things, then yeah, it just, you're, you're losing a lot of what Magic is, but you get to focus on a very specific part of Magic. And if what you really care about is grinding out gameplay and figuring out sequencing and evaluating novel board states, this lets you do that without the occasional feel-bads of, I just drew all lands. The real answer is, don't choose. Just bring your battle box to the cube draft and play both. Do both. Por que no lo dos. Goblin Diplomats. I love that card <laughs> in my battle box. Ogre Marauder. Do you remember what Ogre Marauder does? We're, it's finally happened. We've turned into a, a magic podcast where we list magic cards. That's why I said we should indulge Goblin in it. Goblin Smuggler. We spent 58 episodes not doing that. I think we deserve to do it. Victor. Ogre Marauder is great. One Merchant black black for a 3-1. Whenever it attacks, it can't be blocked this turn unless defending player sacrifices a creature. Ooh, what a solid, aggressive creature. Really good. Love it. All right. That's enough indulging in just reading out magic cards we like, like so many other content creators do. Into the royal. 
Yeah, everyone knows that one, though. It's not a deep cut. You got to go for the deep cuts like Mortis Dogs. Peel from, oh, I love Mortis Dogs. Mortis is that, dogs is that a Kev is Walker? I love that illustration. That is a chippy. Not oh, a, a chippy. Walker. Even better. That's a chippy. Love me a chippy. Keening Banshee. I love Keening Banshee. Yeah, so good. You still have a Dragon Claws, another power outlier in my battle box that I just love too much. Too good. Skin Shifter. All right, we're done. Uh, thanks for tuning Goblin in. Goblin Legionnaire. I said that one already. Oh, damn. Thanks for Come. tuning in to this episode of Lucky Paper Radio. I hope if you are a dedicated cube head, you did not find this episode to be frustrating or distracting. I think there's a lot to learn about cube and magic more broadly from a format like BattleBox. It's been really rewarding for me. And if you haven't tried building a little box, I recommend it. I, I think every reasonably enfranchised magic player should just have a battle box. Even if you don't spend much time designing it, just put some cards you like together that are reasonably close in power level, sleeve up some lands, and uh, you just have this to play whenever you want. No shuffling. Just pick it up, start going. This no shuffling makes me uncomfortable. I, I just never do it. I mean, like, the cards... Like, I don't... I pull from different sections, and, like, usually I'll shuffle a pile once or something. I just... It doesn't matter. You're really... You're a... They end up in a random order. You say that. What order could they possibly I, end I, up I, in? An order. An order. You think it ends up in like a, it's like a roughly curve order because they go into your graveyard in a specific order and they're going to end up lower curved first in the graveyard? What do you, lose, what what do you lose from shuffling? Time. Precious time, Anthony. The only thing we have in this life is time and that's what you lose from shuffling. You know what shuffling is? Podcast time. No. Get it all shuffled up. No, I never Listen shuff- to a podcast. I never sit in my house and shuffle cards. You're insane. Don't do this. Thanks for tuning in to Lucky Paper Radio. All of our music is produced by DJ James and Nasty. All of the magic cards are produced by Wizards of the Coast. The talking is done by me and Anthony and Anthony's toasty little basement down here coming at you live from Baltimore. Anthony, thanks for talking about magic with me. Of course. Uh, it was good to open up my battle box box and just look at all these stupid, stupid foils that I bought. <laughs> yeah, both of our battle boxes are almost completely foiled out on account of uh, the cards being very cheap and largely not played in other formats. So that's another benefit of battle boxes. You can make, like, I guess I guess one of the most concise ways to put my love for battle box design is that in cube you can make any card playable, but it's oftentimes a lot of work to make a card playable and make someone actually take it, put it in their deck, you know, not cut it, take it in the draft. In Battle Box, you can make any card work just by putting it in the box, and someone's got to play it. Right. That card making... immediately becomes literally playable because someone's going to cast it if you they draw it. You can not only make cards playable, you can make them played. Mm-hmm.